Hey there, everybody. It is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. As usual, I am super excited that you're here and always grateful that you are choosing to spend your very precious free time with me. I realize a lot of you are doing this while you're driving, but if you can, pop on some tennis shoes and get outside for a little bit, and we will talk about oxygenation today in episode number 89. And before we hop into that, I want to give two listener shout outs. Okay, so the first one is going to Lynn, who wrote this review. I believe it was on Apple Podcasts, but it could have been on another podcast player. And she says, Hey there, I am so glad I found your information and tools. I am a 56-year-old ready to embark on a new adventure in an ASN program. I don't feel as alone as I did because I found your website and bought your book. Thanks for being here for us. I know I will use your resources a lot. Actually, I think Lynn might have emailed that to me. Um, So thank you, Lynn. I appreciate that. I wanted you to know that I read all the reviews. I read all your comments. I read all your emails. I don't always have time to respond individually, but I just wanted to let you know that it is very, very much appreciated. And then the other listener shout out that I want to make sure I get out there is to all the amazing nursing students that I've been working with for the past couple of weeks in the skills and sim labs at Sac State. You guys, I'm getting my master's degree and I'm doing a lot of clinical hours in the skills lab and in the sim lab. And just working with the students is so much fun. You guys are awesome. And so this applies to all of you, not just the students that I got to meet this week. But when you're out there working as a nurse and you've been doing it for a while, you'll start to realize that students are really, really special because they are so engaged, so happy and eager to learn and excited about the profession. And honestly, you don't see that everywhere you look when you're out there working and We need that positivity. We need that engagement and excitement and passion. And I hope that you keep it. A lot of people lose it at some point along the way. And it's so great to just see it so fresh. And you guys are so smart. And I love your questions and your insights and how dedicated you are to learning. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all of the nursing students out there, especially those of you who are just starting. I know it's hard. I know it's an adjustment. You can do it. And I'm cheering for you 100%. Okay. So today, like I said, we're talking about oxygenation and this is going to be um, a foundation concept and you will start learning about oxygenation first semester early, early on, and then you're going to build on this throughout your nursing school journey. And then as you're out there working as a nurse, you're going to build on it even more. So in this podcast episode today, we'll be talking about the basics of oxygenation and some nursing interventions that apply to that, that you can use in your care plans, in your clinicals, and when you're trying to answer exam questions that relate to this concept. So first, let's review some key terms related to the concept of oxygenation. And the reason I want to bring these up is that they can be easy to get mixed up. So let's clear the air right from the very beginning. So these key terms are oxygenation, 
ventilation, diffusion, and perfusion. Okay, so oxygenation very simply is the process of supplying oxygens to the body's cells. Now, ventilation is that process of exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide, which is essentially breathing. So oxygen comes into the body via the airway, and it's offloaded onto those red blood cells, while carbon dioxide diffuses across the membrane into the alveoli and then exhaled. So you breathe in oxygen and you exhale CO2. That's ventilation. And then diffusion is that process of substances moving across those concentration gradients from areas of high concentration to areas of low concentration. So this is the process that is involved in gas exchange. And you guys all learned that in your anatomy and physiology class, so that's just a little bit of review. And then perfusion is the body process of supplying those oxygenated blood to the cells, and that's reliant on things like adequate cardiac output in order to be optimized for the patient. So again, oxygenation is the process of supplying oxygen to the body. Ventilation is the process of exchanging that oxygen and that carbon dioxide. Essentially, that's breathing. Diffusion is where the substances or the gases move across that concentration gradient from areas of high to low concentration. And then perfusion is the body process of supplying those oxygenated cells to the body's tissue cells. And that's reliant on adequate cardiac output, which if you guys don't know what I'm talking about yet, when I talk about cardiac output, don't stress. You will learn that probably second semester. And that's what I mean when I say you build on these concepts. So we'll be talking about oxygenation today, and then we'll try to start with something a little bit more basic so that you can understand it if you're beginning. And then we'll have some examples where if you're in second semester or advanced med surge, you can see how you build on that concept. So when everything is working in your patient as it should, you have what is considered a normal presentation. So that's an assessment that is WDL and WDL is universal for meaning within defined limits. You may also see WNL within normal limits, but typically it's WDL within defined limits. So what does a normal presentation or a WDL assessment look like? So in a healthy adult who's got those healthy lungs, you'll probably be seeing a patient who is breathing without any signs of distress that you can notice. Their breathing is unlabored and their rate is around 12 to 20 per minute. You're not going to see any abnormal signs of increased respiratory effort, such as accessory muscle use or nasal flaring or grunting or anything like that. That would definitely not be WDL. Their skin is a normal color for their race with no signs of pallor, no cyanosis, which is that bluish tinge to the skin. They're calm. They're not showing anxiety related to their respiratory effort. They're not showing confusion or restlessness. And when you listen to their lungs, 
their lung sounds are nice and clear. Their voice is clear without any signs of hoarseness. They're able to cough. They're able to swallow effectively. You don't see any imminent risk for airway occlusion due to edema or laryngospasm or dysphagia or anything like that. Basically, if you went and looked at yourself in the mirror right now, hopefully what you would see is that picture that I just painted for you. Okay, so I actually want to talk about two more terms that are going to come up that you will need to know when you're learning about oxygenation, and that's hypoxia and hypoxemia. And the reason I want to talk about these is because people will often interchange them, and they're actually two different things. So um, hypoxia refers to a low oxygen level in the tissues, Whereas hypoxemia refers to low oxygen in arterial blood. So if you think of emia being blood related, you can remember the difference. So first thing to understand about these is that you can get real complicated with both of these terms real quickly, and we're not going to go there. We don't need to get that deep into the weeds of this. I just want you to have kind of a high-level overview of what the difference is between hypoxia and hypoxemia. So that hypoxia is typically detected via pulse oximetry. And if you've got an SpO2 below 90 with symptoms, you would consider the patient being hypoxic. And then hypoxemia, remember we're looking at arterial blood, is typically measured via something like an ABG, which is going to tell us where the PaO2 is. And if they're hypoxemic, typically it's below 80 at that point. So it's very important that you understand that these two conditions are actually different and that they do not always occur simultaneously. So that can be really hard to wrap your brain around. So a patient can have hypoxemia without hypoxia if the body has had time and the ability to utilize compensatory mechanisms. And you'll learn a lot more about compensatory mechanisms when you're in your advanced med surge. So if you're not there yet, don't worry. But you'll learn a little bit about it in your first med surge course, how the body is always just trying to achieve that balance. And then conversely, the patient can have hypoxia, that low tissue oxygen level, without hypoxemia, that low level in the arterial blood, if the cells aren't able to utilize oxygen effectively. So if I lost you there, don't worry, we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into this one. So let's say you've got a patient with acute hypoxemia. Their PaO2 is 78. Maybe they got hit with a really solid case of a pneumonia, so they are hypoxemic. So how likely is it that their tissues are getting adequate oxygen if the amount of oxygen in their arterial blood is low? So if you said, eh, I don't think it's going to be that likely, Nurse Mo, then you are right. It is not that likely. So in this case, the patient will most likely have hypoxia along with their hypoxemia. So their tissue is not getting enough oxygen and there's not enough oxygen in the blood. But let's look at a patient with chronic 
hypoxemia. Maybe they have COPD, so they're always a little bit on the low side. If you took an ABG from a patient with chronic COPD, often their PAO2 is in the 50s, and that's hypoxemic for sure, but they've compensated. So do you think that this patient might have a tissue oxygen level that could be normal or close to normal? It is definitely very possible, and that is because of compensatory mechanisms. So remember, the body loves homeostasis and will go to great, great lengths to always keep everything in balance. So in the case of our patient who has that chronic COPD, he has compensated for his lower arterial oxygen level by increasing oxygen delivery. Maybe he's got higher number of red blood cells, maybe his hemoglobin number is higher than normal, or his cardiac output has increased. Another way is that oxygen consumption at the tissue level has been decreased. So what do you think would happen to this patient, say, if he developed left-sided heart failure? Would he be able to have that higher cardiac output to meet the body's desire to achieve homeostasis? Probably not. So you'll often see patients with COPD who can plug along just fine with their chronic hypoxemia, but when they're hit with some other problem like a heart failure issue or another respiratory issue on top of it like pneumonia, very common, or maybe his kidneys aren't working so well, so he's not going to have the right amount of erythropoietin being uh, produced, so his red blood cells might not be able to ramp up. Maybe he's got a chronic anemia from some other issues, so he won't be able to achieve that homeostasis through those compensatory mechanisms, and that's when you start seeing them get in to trouble. Now, on the other hand, patients who have a normal PaO2 level, so not hypoxemic, could actually be hypoxic if they have issues with oxygen delivery or their tissues just aren't able to utilize oxygen effectively. So remember, hypoxia is that oxygen level at the tissue. So if the body can't deliver the oxygen properly or the tissues aren't able to utilize it properly, you'll be hypoxic regardless of how much oxygen is circulating around in the arterial blood. So this can occur in cases like there's some mitochondrial disorders where this can occur. It occurs a lot with the metabolic derangements that happen in sepsis. And it occurs in cyanide poisoning. But in general, hypoxemia, which again is the low arterial blood level is usually the cause of hypoxia. And they'll often be present simultaneously. I just wanted you to be aware that they don't always occur simultaneously and the reasoning behind that. So let's look at hypoxia and what that patient would present like. What would their presentation be? So a patient who is hypoxic likely going to be tachycardic because the cardiovascular system is trying to compensate by increasing cardiac output. In addition, the patient could be very 
anxious, confused, restless, one of the first signs of hypoxia or hypoxemia or low oxygen levels anywhere is that the patient is going to get confused and restless. And the reason we are attributing it now to hypoxia is because the brain is a tissue and the brain tissue is not getting enough oxygen. So the patient's going to get very restless, very confused and anxious. A lot of times these patients will be taking off their oxygen because they're disoriented, they're restless, and the one thing that's going to help them is the one thing they keep taking off. So it can be very challenging sometimes to take care of these patients. This patient will have a low SpO2 level most likely. If you have pallor, or you have cyanosis, especially very late sign cyanosis. Pallor probably possibly occur before cyanosis. It really just depends on the patient. But if you see either one of those, your patient's in trouble and you have to do something. The patient could be showing signs of air hunger or exhibiting things like increased work of breathing. They could be gasping. They could be gulping for air. If your patient's gulping for air, really bad. You have got to get in there and do something right away. They could be using their accessory muscles. So you might be seeing that what we say um, an increased work of breathing is when we are seeing that accessory muscle use or breathing more quickly. The tachypnea is often present because they're trying to get in more oxygen. Another great sign that the patient could be hypoxic is that they are only able to speak in very short sentences, very short of breath. So one of the ways that you're going to be assessing your patients at all times is cluing in to how much can they say before they have to stop and take a breath. If your patient starts out speaking in full sentences and then on your next interaction, they're only able to get four or five words out there's been a change and something needs to be done. So let's talk about um, airway patency for just a quick moment. So that's another really key component is to always make sure that your patient's airway is patent. Um, things like inflammation, swelling, that's going to cause the airway to be more narrow and that's going to cause issues for the patient. And then occlusions can occur for all kinds of reasons. Often it's because of mucus plugs farther down. They're not necessarily up in the upper airway, um, though sometimes you could have something occluding the upper airway, like you know a big glob of phlegm or something. But mucus plugs are typically down lower in the bronchial tree. You could have anatomical structures that are causing an airway occlusion. Often that's um, the tongue in cases of patients who have uh, decreased muscle tone. Maybe they've just come out of surgery and they're still under the effects of some of that anesthetic or their tongue has swollen because they've taken an ACE inhibitor for the first time and surprise, they're allergic. Well, not allergic to ACE inhibitors because it is a side effect of ACE inhibitors. So um, it would be listed as an allergy in the med chart because of the severe reaction that patients have. But one of the adverse side effects of ACE inhibitors is that it can cause angioedema. And with that is a very swollen tongue and a swollen airway. Um, patients could have a tumor that's occluding their airway as well. And then always foreign bodies can be a, a risk for patients. So let's talk about what we're going to do 
about our patient who's having issues with oxygenation. So we're going to do this by looking at a few little case studies. I know you guys really like case studies. So we're looking at options for getting more of them to you in a way that is meaningful, um, possibly more on the podcast. Maybe I'll be writing a case study book adding them to the course. I've played around um, with putting them in the Facebook group, but I find that it's hard for the posts to stay really visible because there's so much activity in the group. So I don't know if that's the best way, but if you have ideas for case study delivery, please send them to me. I am happy to brainstorm with you on that. Okay, so our first patient is Bob. Bob is my favorite patient. You'll notice whenever I'm talking about a fake patient, his name is often Bob. Bob has a lot of problems. So today, Bob's problem is he's got COPD, and he's come into the emergency room with increased shortness of breath over the past day or so. At this time, Bob is speaking to you in three-word sentences. He's sitting, leaned forward with his hands on his knees, and that is called tripod position, and that is a very common position that patients with COPD and respiratory distress will assume because it opens the... um, it allows for greater lung expansion. So it's just, they just kind of do it automatically. It's their position of comfort. Bob feels warm to the touch. He tells you in his three-word sentences that he's been coughing up thick, yellowish-green sputum. He's got... um Well, first, what vital signs do you want the most? Like you're looking at Bob, he's speaking in three-word sentences, he's assumed a tripod position, and he's warm, and he's been coughing nasty stuff up. So what vital signs do you want the most right now? So the vital signs you probably care the most about, I'm not saying you don't care about the others, but the ones you care the most about are his SpO2 via pulse oximetry And how fast is Bob breathing? So those would be the two vital signs I would care the most about. Of course, I want to look at his heart rate. I want to look at his blood pressure. And I'm going to take his temp because he feels warm. I'm thinking infection. You're probably thinking infection. But the data I need right away, SpO2 and respiratory rate. And of those two, I want the SpO2 first. Um, You'll get used to, I don't want you estimating respiratory rates for your charting, but just for your like nurse spidey sense to go off, you'll get used to what a tachypnea looks like versus a bradypnea pretty quickly. Sadly, the vital sign that's most often miscalculated, mismeasured, mischarted is respiratory rate. And studies are showing that tachypnea is one of the most consistent early clinical indicators of deterioration and decline. So making sure you get that accurate respiratory rate is really, really important. More importantly, though, if his SpO2 is 100% on Rumera, it's not going to be, but let's say his SpO2 was 100% or 98% on Rumera, but his respiratory rate was 30 Okay, what that tells me is there's an issue because he should not be breathing that fast and he is going to tire out, but he's compensating for it right this minute. I'm still going to do something about it, but that might be different based on um, if his SpO2 was 70 and he was breathing 30 times a minute. See what I mean? 
if his SpO2 was 70, I'm going to, he's probably going to get intubated, honestly, at that point. But um, we would probably be getting an ABG and getting a little bit of a deeper dive into that. So SpO2 and respiratory rate, key information we want to know from Bob. Because you're so smart, you think, I'm suspicious Bob's got pneumonia. He's got COPD, so he's at high risk for pneumonia. He feels warm. He's coughing. He's got that low oxygen saturation, and he's got that nasty sputum. So I want to get some more information. So we've gotten the um, full set of vital signs is the next thing that we definitely want to do. And we definitely want to perform a focused respiratory assessment. Um, we'll anticipate that the MD is going to order things like a CBC. You want to take a look at his white blood cell count with that. Definitely want to send some of that sputum off for a culture, possibly a blood culture, if it looks like he's septic, but let's say he doesn't look septic right now, and a chest x-ray. Now, a lot of you, when I did a case study um, a few weeks back, we had a patient with a pneumonia in that case study in the Facebook group, and many of you were saying you wanted an ABG right from the start, and I think that's probably because that's what they're teaching you in school, is that pneumonia means ABG all the time. Not always necessarily will it occur, um, simply because it is a very, very painful and very expensive test. Um, I don't, it's a lot. I mean, you wouldn't think it would be that expensive to run an ABG because it's so fast, but it does bill the patient for a fair amount of money. And it's really painful to do that radial artery puncture. So in Bob's case, if his sat, let's say he's breathing 30 times a minute and his SpO2 is like 90 or 88, I'd probably anticipate the MD starting with some supplemental oxygen and seeing how he does before adding on an ABG to the labs. Now, if Bob has a change in condition or he came in unresponsive or his SpO2 was really low and he was cyanotic or dusky, they're probably going to dig deeper with an ABG. But it's not a test that's done willy-nilly because it is really painful and kind of expensive. And a lot of times you don't need that information. You can assess the patient, the MD can see what's going on with the patient without that test. And as long as the patient's improving, they often won't do it. Now, if he's not improving, they will want to dig a little bit deeper and do that. So we've got Bob. We think he's got a pneumonia. His SpO2 is probably going to be low. His respiratory rate probably a little bit high. And he's short of breath and speaking in just a few words at a time. So is Bob's problem ventilation? or oxygenation. So when you think about pneumonia, you guys remember, um, maybe you learned about pneumonia if you took a pathophysiology class or you've had a lecture on this already. So the alveoli are kind of filling up with gunk, you know, fluid-filled alveoli, they're consolidating, and that is preventing gas exchange. So Bob's problem is oxygenation. He's ventilating, like you're watching him breathe up and down, air is moving in and out, but he's not oxygenating well because that alveolar membrane is not able to participate effectively in gas exchange. So you're going to anticipate supplying some supplemental oxygen to Bob and giving ordered medications 
for his pneumonia-like antibiotics, possibly some corticosteroids to reduce inflammation, and keeping an eye on his oxygen status. And what you want to see with Bob, let's say we put him on an oxy mask at six to eight liters. And what we want to see is Bob being more comfortable. And as you assess patients and as you get used to seeing patients in distress of all different types, you'll really clue into what a patient in distress looks like to the point where you can walk into a room and immediately know something is wrong. Um, you will see Bob improve, and hopefully that improvement will look like less work of breathing. So maybe he doesn't use his accessory muscles as much or at all. Perhaps you see that he's able to now speak in longer sentences. He started out at three-word sentences. Maybe he's up to six or seven words now. His color should improve. His um, oxygenation, his SpO2 will improve. So those are the signs that you want to see. If he was really anxious, which he very well might have been when he first came in, you'll see him relax. Now, here's a key thing to know about oxygenation and patients that start out anxious and then become very um, somnolent. Most likely, it's not that they're finally chilling out and went to sleep. A lot of times, these patients will tire out and then they don't have any gas left in the tank. And that could be the reason for their decreased uh, level of consciousness. That patient is getting an ABG for sure. The other reason is that if they are retaining their CO2, the CO2 is going to rise to the point where it becomes the world's most effective sleep aid, and they are going to be out and somnolent from hypercapnia. That patient has just bought themselves an ABG as well. So when you're looking at Bob, you don't want to see him become somnolent and difficult to arouse. You want to see him relaxed in his normal manner, like sitting in bed, maybe he's watching TV or playing games on his phone. That's a patient that's not in distress, okay? So you want to see an improvement. If he doesn't improve, you're going to let the MD know. Respiratory therapy will be working with you as well and discuss ideas for maybe in advancing his oxygen support to a non-rebreather. Maybe he needs BiPAP, whatever. So just watching for improvements. Remember that a key part of the nursing process is that reassessment after you intervene. Okay, so Bob's problem was oxygenation with his pneumonia. Let's talk about Sally, my other favorite patient. So Sally has been brought in by a family member who found her unresponsive on the bathroom floor. And... They did not call an ambulance. You have no idea why, but this happens all the time. They brought her in, and you notice that Sally is breathing seven times per minute. And you guys remember what the normal respiratory rate for an adult is like 12 to 20. Some, some references will say 10 to 20, but definitely seven. You know that's too low. So what other data do you want to obtain from Sally's family? Think about what you need to know right away 
what's the most important information that you can use to then go to the MD and give a succinct SBAR report. So you definitely want to know what her SpO2 is. Get her on the pulse oximetry, and then you want to check her GCS, her Glasgow Coma Scale score. She's unresponsive. How unresponsive? Does she wake to voice? Does she wake to painful stimuli? Does she open her eyes to any stimulation? You'd also want to check some vital signs. You know, what's going on with her heart? Is she having a cardiac issue? Is she bradycardic? Is that why she's unresponsive? Is she in SVT? And that's why she's unresponsive because her body hasn't been able to, um, her cardiac output is just not optimal with that high rate or is her blood pressure really low? Like get a full set of vitals on Sally. And then do a focused respiratory assessment as well. She's only breathing seven times per minute. Take a quick listen to her lungs. So you're going to hook Sally up to the monitor. And when you do that, you notice that her SpO2 is 77% on room air. And her GCS score is a three. So if you haven't learned GCS, you will in your neurological assessment. But when you have a GCS of three, that's like the lowest score you can get. So Sally is not opening her eyes or moving her body in response to any stimulation, even really painful stimulation. She doesn't make any sounds at all, doesn't moan, nothing. When you listen to her lungs, they're clear. Her lungs are clear. You hear air movement in all lung fields, but it's very shallow and slow. Those bases aren't getting a lot. And then you are thinking at this point, is Sally's problem oxygenation or is it ventilation? So most likely Sally's problem is ventilation. Her respiratory rate and depth are just not adequate. And these have both led to her decreased SpO2 level of 77%. If you were to get uh, an ABG on Sally and obtain a PaO2 measurement, would you expect it to be normal or would you expect it to be low? So most likely, it's going to be low. So very, very good. So now that you've determined that Sally's problem is most likely due to poor ventilating, what do you immediately want to do for her? Well, as nurses, we can assist ventilation with a bag valve mask. So we call that assisted ventilation. We use the BVM and that's um, the contraption. You guys all took BLS. So if you remember, that's the contraption with the mask and the bag on it. And you want to crank that oxygen up to like 10 to 15 liters per minute going full flow and begin bagging this patient. You're going to call for the MD, make sure that they get in there. You'll have friends, somebody can go grab the doc and most likely be preparing to intubate a patient with a GCS of three who's got a low O2 sat. They're not able to breathe effectively on their own. They need supported ventilation at this time. So you're bagging Sally. The family member finally comes out of their panic and says, Sally has degenerative, de I can never say that word, degenerative, 
degenerative disc disease. That and glomerulonephritis are the two words that really mess me up. But Sally has degenerative disc disease and wears a fentanyl patch because of her chronic pain. Oh, now what are we thinking? You're going to do that quick scan, that full body scan of Sally. And as you do that, you find not one, not two, not three, but four fentanyl patches. And you guys, this happens. So what are you going to do now? You are really suspicious and probably 100% correct in thinking that Sally's respiratory depression and hypoventilation is because of an opioid overdose. So what is the medication that will reverse that opioid? If you said Narcan or Naloxone, A+, you're doing great. What else do you want to do? You're going to call for that Narcan as you remove the fentanyl patches, okay? Get the source off her body. And you will be continuing that assist, assisted ventilation. The Narcan will be given, and Sally should perk up pretty quickly. Now, one thing I want you to know about giving Narcan to patients, especially patients who are in a ton of pain and chronically in a ton of pain, is that that Narcan is going to knock the opioids off those receptor sites and replace them for a little bit, meaning Sally's getting no pain management at all. And when this happens, that sudden, sudden removal of their pain management, Sally's going to wake up uh, with guns ablazing, you guys. Most likely, patients wake up from Narcan and they are agitated um, and for very good reason. So just be aware that she could wake up and immediately lash out because it's such a shock to the system. So... She is breathing, though, and that is the main thing that we want. So what do we do next with Sally? So I've got four choices, multiple choice here on the podcast. Choice A, we're going to assess Sally for suicidal ideation, then send her home when she says, oh my gosh, it was an accident. I lost track of my patches, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's choice A. Assessing her, was this an intentional um, act? B is Continue monitoring Sally for respiratory depression. C is we're going to send Sally, we're going to admit her. She's going to go to the med surge floor and we're going to get a psych consult because Sally needs a little extra support in that area. Or D, we're going to provide Sally and her family with education about the fentanyl patches that you can't just leave them on. It's not like you put it on and then it runs out of juice and then you put another one on and it runs out of juice. You got to take the patches off and give them that education before discharging her home. So... Which choice are you going to choose for Sally in the ER after giving her some Narcan? So hopefully you chose answer B, and if you didn't, that's okay because you might not know about how Narcan works just yet, but you will continue monitoring Sally for respiratory depression. And even though Narcan or Naloxone, as it's a generic name, is really, really great at reversing opioids, it's not going to last as long as the opioid itself has lasted. So you don't know how long these patches were on Sally. 
Maybe you don't even know what the dose of them was. Maybe you couldn't get all that information. But you don't really know how much fentanyl is still running around in her system. So what will happen is eventually the Narcan will wear off. It'll come off those receptor sites and the opioid will go right back onto that receptor site where it wants to be. And Sally will go night-night once again. So we need to keep monitoring her for signs of respiratory depression. And she may need additional doses of Narcan. I've had patients come up to the medical ICU with overdose, and they'll be on a continuous low-dose Narcan infusion. So you also want to find out um, from Sally or her family what other medications she may have taken, and you definitely want to do that suicide risk assessment. That is definitely going to be part of your assessment with Sally when it's appropriate, when she's able to have a meaningful uh, conversation with you. If this was an intentional act, then she's definitely going to be evaluated by a psychiatrist before she is discharged. And if you answered C, which the choice with that was um, admit Sally, she's going to the med surge floor, and we've got a psych consult coming, you were definitely right in thinking that Sally needs to be admitted and definitely needs a psych consult if it was an intentional um, act. But a med surge floor is not the place for her. She's going to go to ICU just because the med surge floor, with the way that staffing is, is they're not going to be monitoring her respiratory status continually, and that is what you need. So she'll go to the ICU and again, possibly even on a continuous naloxone infusion. Okay, you guys are doing so great. Let's talk about James. James has been brought in by ambulance, and you'll see the uh, abbreviation B-I-B-A, and that's brought in by ambulance. So don't be like me and think, what the heck is Biba? Um, there's a restaurant near where I work called Biba's, and I was so confused for about two minutes until I realized, oh, brought in by ambulance. Okay, so James was brought in by ambulance for increased shortness of breath, and he's been really tired for like three days now. His wife states that she's noticed some black tar-like stools, but just thought it was something that he ate. Maybe James loves black licorice as much as I do, and she thought, whoa, he's really been getting into the licorice. So she didn't think too much of it. Your first impression of James is that he is pale. This poor man is pale. He's lethargic, and when you feel and palpate for his pulse, it's weak it's thready, and it's rapid. He's telling you he just can't catch his breath, and he's beginning to get a little bit confused. So what other information do you want about James right now before you get any other data? So a patient that's come in very fatigued with that weak, thready pulse, starting to get a little bit confused, has had some black tarry stools, you definitely want an SpO2. Also, he's telling you he can't catch his breath, so you want that SpO2. You want a blood pressure, and you want a CBC. You already know his heart rate is fast. You would want to hook him up um, and check uh, or count that pulse, but you already know it's fast. Um, so more importantly than that, the data you don't have yet is what is his blood pressure. So Oxygen saturation, blood pressure, and getting a CBC would be the three most important pieces of information, most useful pieces of information for me. Though, of course, 
I would want a full set of vitals. So James is exhibiting some pretty classic signs of having a pretty solid GI bleed. That black tarry stool is the key, and that is a classic symptom, and that is the classic symptom that will be on your exams if you're talking about a patient with a GI bleed. Upper GI bleed is going to be more like vomiting coffee ground emesis or even vomiting blood. So James is now suffering from respiratory distress and hypovolemia. His vitals show that his SpO2 is 88% on room air. So no wonder he's feeling like he can't really catch his breath. His heart rate is 123. So you were absolutely spot on when you assessed it via palpation and noticed that it was fast. So good job there. And his blood pressure is 83 over 52. So I got a blood pressure of 83 over 52 on James. I'm going to make sure two things, that the cuff is positioned properly and that I chose the appropriate sized cuff. And let's say that I did both of those things. I'm going to believe that that 83 over 52 is correct. It also correlates with how he is presenting. So we've drawn the CBC. We're waiting for that to come back. The MD could possibly order a fluid bolus that would be very, very common for James, for someone with a low blood pressure like that, and orders to keep oxygen above 92%. So you've got two orders, and they're both important, oxygen or fluid bolus. Which one do you want to do first? When I teach students about prioritizing nursing interventions, the... um, key to that is you want to do the thing that's going to provide the most benefit the quickest. And grabbing an oxygen mask and getting it on James can be done really quickly and is immediately, close to immediately, going to help his feeling of shortness of breath. However, he does need that fluid bolus for his blood pressure. So grab the oxygen and then you're getting that fluid bolus going. And that fluid bolus is going to take 5 to 10 to 15 minutes to infuse depending on how much fluid has been ordered. So you get the mask on James, and let's say you're starting conservatively with a 500 mil fluid bolus. While it's infusing, the lab gives you a ring and tells you that James has a critically low hemoglobin level. So now what does James need more than anything else? What is James' problem? He's breathing just fine. But he simply does not have enough hemoglobin to transport oxygen around his system. So while oxygen may help in this situation, it's not going to fix the problem. And what that is going to be is a blood transfusion. So you get two units of packed red blood cells into James. And over the course of that blood transfusion, he pinks up. So he gets way less pale and he starts breathing more easily and states that he feels so much better. James gets admitted to the ICU for some close monitoring, and the doc orders a GI consult, and likely James is going to have a EGD scope um, in the morning, okay, or possibly a colonoscopy, depending on where they think that bleed is coming from. So 
We have three different patients here that we talked about, and they all had issues with oxygenation, but for vastly different reasons. And that's why oxygenation is such a core foundation concept that you will be learning about. So Bob had pneumonia. He was ventilating fine, but his oxygenation across that alveolar membrane was suffering in a big way. Bob got some supplemental oxygen and treatment for his infection, and that's going to be what helps Bob do better. And then Sally had opioid-induced respiratory depression. Her lungs were in great shape, but her respiratory effort was weak. She got assisted ventilation with the BVM, and she would have probably gotten intubated if we hadn't discovered the cause in all those pesky fentanyl patches. She got a couple doses of Narcan, improved dramatically, and her oxygenation was fixed. Her oxygenation issue was fixed. And then James had shortness of breath due to severe anemia. We supported his oxygenation with some supplemental O2 and addressed the problem with two issues of packed red blood cells, getting that GI consult, and getting that plan for a diagnostic, possibly an intervention with that scope, that EGD or colonoscopy that's going to be done in the morning. So you guys did an excellent job with those little case studies. And I just want to leave you with some quick things to think through when you're presented with a patient who's having respiratory difficulties. So if your patient is lying down, they're supine, one of the things that you can do, super simple, is sit them upright, and that often helps dramatically to improve their lung expansion. Um, Definitely a lot easier in that upright position, especially if the patient is heavy and has a lot of weight on their chest or has pulmonary edema or congestive heart failure. That upright position is going to help dramatically. Now, let's say the patient is supine or in whatever position, and it looks like they're occluding their airway because maybe they have, they've gone unconscious, they've taken too many um, opioids, or you've given too many opioids, or they've just come out of surgery, then a great intervention is to just do a jaw thrust or a chin lift maneuver. And that is a lot of times all it takes to restore airway patency. If it's um, also combined with hypoventilation, you would keep that um, chin lift or jaw thrust um, going as someone else is either supplying supplemental oxygen or doing um, assisted ventilation with the BVM. If the patient has low um, oxygen levels and they can cooperate, having them cough, having them take some deep breaths is sometimes all they need to do. You guys will be surprised to see how much a solid good cough can help a patient clear out some of the junk from their lungs and improve their oxygenation. It's going to improve that gas exchange. If the patient has a restrictive airway disease like COPD, they can learn a technique called pursed lip breathing. And what that does is it helps increase intra-airway pressure to keep the alveoli open for a little bit longer and improve gas exchange at the alveoli. And then most patients in the hospital, in the acute care setting, will have standing orders to maintain an oxygen level above 90 or 92 or whatever the physician deems optimal for that patient. 
But which oxygen delivery system you choose is often up to you and your nursing judgment and the severity of the respiratory distress and that patient's condition. So I've got a uh, episode, was it an episode or a blog post? One of the two, I'll link to it, that talks about oxygen delivery systems. And then there's another one about um, when you might intubate your patient. So I'll link to those and you guys can check those out. So that's all I have for you today on the topic of oxygenation. Next week, we'll be talking about five assessments that I want you to get into the habit of doing with every single patient interaction. Every time you go in the room, I want you to do these five quick assessments, and they're going to give you a lot of data about how your patient is doing. So if you want to learn about those, come back next week, and I will see you here. Thanks so much for listening. You guys have a fantastic day. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 